Okay, now, we've been studying, of course, what one might say one of the foremost thinkers of the 20th century, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik. And he has distinguished himself in two distinct areas. His halach formulations, his analysis, the way that he approaches any sugya in Talmud is one which has descri- is described as radically different than anybody prior to what he has actually done. And when one studies his halachic formulations, you see how unique he is. And what's interesting, of course, is that he takes every set of halachot and conceptualizes them, puts it into a framework, and he shows how all of these halachot are all integrated into one conceptual unit itself. So one can spend endless hours studying his halachic formulations, how he understands Talmudic sugyot, and how he takes, let's say, the Rambam, and sees whether it's a contradiction in the Rambam, with other Rishonim, and how he analyzes conceptually each of these halachic issues. Every issue that he approaches is done with a certain kind of a methodological, systematic, very rigid analysis. Meaning, you define your halacha, you classify it, conceptualize it, and unless you've actually seen him do this, it's hard to really describe. However, what I find more fascinating, although people will, of course, emphasize this aspect, is his philosophical formulations. Because he wasn't simply an ivory tower scholar. Rather, he understood the needs of the people themselves. As opposed to some great poskim who simply sit in their Beit Midrash and they will elaborate, elucidate, in the small bubble of halakha, and they're speaking to 15 or 20 or 30 people, kind of not really fully aware that out there you have, whether it's conservative, reform Jews, whether it's, there is ecumenism, ecumenical issues, all the issues, philosophical issues, that are combating the Jewish people, the Holocaust, the problem of evil, the meaning of prayer, how philosophically meaningful is halakha, is Judaism, he deals with all of those questions as well. Rare to find a man of this stature so fully halakhically of course, committed, but so in tune with the halachic formulations and analyses, as well as seeing the broader picture of what the nation of Israel needs. In other words, what's leadership all about? Is leadership simply a function of paskining a shayla? What does halacha say, this issue? Or is leadership seeing a broader canvas out there and addressing those needs? Interestingly, Rabbi Sarechik was so heavily involved in halachic analysis, and that's what his claim to fame has always been, I would say that it's been underestimated as a leader in establishing what's known as the monothox movement, which means that one can be fully intellectually engaged in the modern world, as well as traditionally halachic without any compromises whatsoever. Fully modern, fully halachic. That is what University's claim to fame is, and he, of course, established over the course of 50 years, 60 years, that particular philosophy of modern Judaism. But he would simply say, that's what the Rambam did. A thousand years ago, the Rambam was thoroughly modern, fully conversant with the philosophical norms, medical norms, <clears throat> scientific norms of his period, but all integrated with a broader conceptual framework of what halakha and what Judaism is really all about. So Rabbi Selechik is just kind of Thousands later, updated that, and he has this new philosophical formulation. But the key point that I want to emphasize over here is that in this second area, underappreciated, I find tremendous meaning. So when you read The Lonely Man of Faith, we read any of his other philosophical essays, you find a depth of understanding that is rare. It's, I would say, virtually impossible to find 
his depth of understanding in any other thinker of the 20th century, especially because it's so traditional. It's rooted all in halachic norms. He believes that you cannot say as Heschel. Heschel is a great thinker, but he will discover what's appropriate in other philosophical contexts, and then he will apply it to Judaism. Well, Salvechik says no. All, every legitimate idea has to be rooted in a halachic formulation. He'll take a halacha and it'll expand into a philosophical principle about what we are really all about. Which is very different than all of the other thinkers, the Heschels, the Bubers, the Rosenzweigs, the Fackenheims. They take other ideas and they will reinterpret Judaism in light of those ideas. He says, no, I only take halacha, my ideas all emerge from halacha. When you say halacha, means, I mean, halacha is already filtered by, by the rabbis with the had string of philosophy. So it could be that the halacha itself already has that the, the string of philosophy that it you could are be. actually. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So when you're talking halacha, you're talking about uh, all halachot. You're not talking about only biblical halachot. No, halacha as is traditionally yeah. conceived, which is, of course, biblical and Talmudic and Rishonim. He will build, he will build, as you will see, and I want to get to this today, he will build, as you will see, conceptual, philosophical castles of meaningfulness based on halakhic formulations. But, again, I don't want to really approach right now the halakhic aspects of this. I want to say something that's purer than that, so to speak. And, as noted in the previous weeks, the threefold thread that actually binds all his works together is number one, of course, absolute commitment to halakha, as each halakha portrays, halakha is everything, halakha is divine norms, divine will, as imposed upon every issue in life. That's what we strive for. Take the divine norm, it's on haboreh, and whatever issue it may be, from birth to death and beyond, we take the halakha norms, understood conceptually, and we impose that mathematically precise, rigidly defined system as scientific as any modern scientific endeavor and impose that system upon what you do in business, medical ethics, pulling plugs. It's all an imposition of a defined halachic system into a contemporary situation, thereby achieving the goal of trying to create a society that is divinely sanctioned. That's the idea. That's the scientific Science is, and that, if anything, if he's prejudiced, he was very scientifically, mathematically interested, aware, and concerned. He wants to be consistent. Yes, but when you're saying halakhic, it's scientific. Meaning it's methodology. In other words, if you have, what's, what's characteristic of science per se? The characteristic of science per se is that it's mathematically structured, rigid, and consistent, and not self-contradictory. Rigid in the sense that it takes principles and then applies them. In other words, in math, it's a theoretical system that has to fit, that has to make sense. And you pose that math, and he says this very often in Ishaalacha, and he will say that, and we've read it a few weeks ago, that he will take that mathematical model in the same way, and then you apply the mathematical, it's theoretical physics, theoretical mathematics. So they could develop a system, then they apply it to the world. Theoretical physics will apply to the world, and either it matches or doesn't match. So do over here. Take a halakhic system that's going to be structured, defined, classified, conceptualized, and it's going to work. 
theoretically. And then a physicist, Einstein, will see does it work in the practical world. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. I'll have to tweak the system. So same thing over here. Take a halachic issue. And again, I don't want to go into this right now, but he will take, for example, and um, I didn't use that particular source, but let's say aninut. What's aninut? Prior to burial. What are my halachic obligations or lack thereof? He will explain philosophically what aninut is conceptually, what's avilut, what's the traditional moment, and it's all going to be imposed upon an event that takes place. person passed away. I am an onen. I have certain halakhic obligations, or lack thereof. I don't say any berachot. And then I, we bury the person. And then we go into avilut, and, you, and shoshim. And you, it's all defined rigidly, clearly, conceptually, as a halakhic system, which we impose upon everybody's reality. That's not scientific. <laughs> it's scientific and methodological approach. Well, you're just using the words differently than I'm using it. Yeah, so I'm using it as a methodological, operative, operating principle. In other words, it's not simply random, discrete halachot. Do this, do this, do this, do this. It's not what it is. Or in Kashrut, for example, his famous quip has been that before Rav Chaim, his grandfather, conceptualized all halacha into five basic principles, it was always, you come to me with a question, right? The question is, milk and meat. I use my milk spoon, my meat pot, I stirred it, it was Ben Yomor, not Ben Yomor, and the rabbi before of Chaim would have to memorize 50,000 cases that could possibly happen. When did you use it last? What was it? How much did it have in it? Balua, not Balua, all that. All different discrete points. So you do all these points, and you come to your conclusion, whatever it may be. Memorize all this. Or similarly, where Chamawadja will have a chart at the end of a Sidur, if you stopped in this part, when do you stop in this part of Tefillah for what purpose? Amen, Pirachot, Kaddish, Adishach, in this place, in that place, there's 40, 50, 60, 70 halachot. Now, if you conceptualize that, the two principles, what's if sick, what's not sick, what's absolute, what's not absolute, you have the whole thing with just two, two points to be made. So, again, you want to conceptualize it as you do in Kashrut, and, and as he says, before Rav Chaim, all Kashrut was pots and pans as opposed to conceptual principles that apply across the board. I think a conceptual principle applies in every case. Ben Yomor, not Ben Yomor. That's number one question. Use that day, not use that day. Right? Did I trafe up my pot or the food? Two different questions. And I could analyze any question that comes in all the time. Different questions that have to be, and I just take my five principles, so to speak, and I apply it, and that's the answer. So these are rigidly defined Conceptually consistent principles. Good. So now what I want to share with you is how he brings to the table a completely different idea <coughs> philosophically and how he interprets his biblical text creatively. Remember that we had said before, number one, absolute commitment to halakha, without question. And studying halakha, studying it is as spiritually edifying as is reading Tehillim. I told you the story last week. When Rosh Hashanah, you want to read Tehillim, the says, no, study the Masech Rosh Hashanah. It's the same thing. It's as spiritually edifying to study Halakha, Gemara, as is reading Tehillim. You're not more pious to read Tehillim than if you study Gemara itself. Okay, good. That's number one. Number two is his, of course, insistence, and again, this is straight from biblical and rabbinic sources, on justice and righteousness. That is the flaming cudgel that this Isha Halakha is going to carry. Doing what's right in life. 
doing what's just, doing what is righteous, is what you want to do. So that we emphasized last week as well. That is what Ish al-Khad does. His position, as we mentioned, is not really about leadership other than doing what's right. And he told you the story where the poor man died first, the rich man died second, who he buried first, of course the poor man, but the rich man paid the money first, so the Chayba Kedisha wants to honor the rich to get the extra money. He says, no, it's not halakha correct. What's the halakha? Here's the halakha, and I absolutize that halakha, and I must bury the poor man. So they said, no, we're burying the rich man first, because he paid the money. Absolutely not. Chaim took his walking stick, went to the Chayba I insist that you must bury the poor man first. That's the halakha. That's what's, that's what's right and just to do. So, halakha is a reflection of what's righteous and just. So that is the second thread. Yeah. I mean, most Muslims already seem to have agreed or incorporated a psychological compassion aspect to Pesach and so on and so forth. What a, in, in every aspect, the problem comes is that everyone has a different level of compassion. One guy will look at the object and say, that's true. I guess you have to moderate, the woman is poor, uh, you know, maybe it's batil, and, puts a bit, and stuff like that. Like, when you come to Pesach, if you say, is, uh, if you judge it now, you have to say, that's true. You reach him and say, Pesach, and say, oh, okay, oh, so Pesach has not talk. It's type of thing. So if you're moderating the Pesach with some compassion into it, I don't think he would say that. Would. That's too subjective. He would not say that. I don't think he would say that. But you need specific examples. Broad generalizations don't no, fit I well into a... I, I understand. But we have to see what he would say in that situation. In other words, again, broad generalizations, whether it's a specific case or not, is not what he's going to speak of. He's going to give you what's Pesach Halakha in that particular issue. And I, I agree with you. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you. That part of that Pesach Halakha... But he wouldn't use the term compassion. Uh, they don't like to invoke it, but they all work with it. I'm, it I'm, not, I'm not interested in the Rambam. Right. It doesn't matter what he says. Right. And it just, whether they invoke it or not, again, he has a very rigidly defined mathematical system that's applied to the real world. That's halacha. That's what we do. But it's not, it's not one, mathemat- it's one mathematical system. When you come to Nefeshot, you will have one mathematical system. When you come to Mamon, you'll have a different, different could system. Could be. It's different. Okay, could be. It's different. Give uh, you have a different one. Is it all right there? You may, you may not. So all that's part of the system. All that's part, he defines the system. It's different equations. It's not one Agreed. Equation. Justice is one equation. Okay, but that's the underlying motif of all of the psychalachak. That's And that's what he said last week. Let's go on. So now what I'm going to show you is how he operates in a real in the real philosophical context. Not halacha. I could, but not. We want to just take an essay that he wrote which is completely um, different. I don't make enough. Share. Share. Unless you want to... Uh, what essay is it? Catharsis. And I, I, I can go make two more copies. Do we oh, want to do that? Okay, we'll share. We'll listen. No, We're good. Okay. The now. Sorry? What is? Zeman. Time. Time. Yes, 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 yes. Correct. Okay, good. So now this is, this is an essay. Right? It's an essay that he wrote. And notice how he begins and how he follows through and how he defines his terms. And you're not going to see the entire, the entire essay, granted, but she want to show you how he operates with his biblical conceptions. He starts the essay saying, oh, Halakha, title, sorry, yeah, what does it mean? Catharsis, it's a great question. Catharsis means, <laughs> Catharsis is cleansing. Okay. When you cleanse yourself spiritually, Catharsis. In other words, a person may have transgressed. And now he's in need of 
spiritual cleansing, which is what catharsis is all about. Does it have any implication of like, how say, suffering your body or something? No, no let's see. Let's see. Cathartic. Somebody is not cathartic. Yeah, it's not a magic. Right. It's not, no. I, 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 no. Back to school. Yeah, no, I don't know. Go back to school. Okay. Catharsis <laughs> is a process. You engage in catharsis in order to cleanse oneself. Something that's a place. Let's see what he says. Halakha is never the spirit of man either as a natural being integrated into the physical environment who is a spiritual personality confronting God. The sufferance of man on his part of the halakha is not an unqualified one. The halakha demands that man cleanses himself in order to achieve his full worth. Yeshayah describing the future of redemption of the Jewish people speaks of cleansing as an indispensable condition of redemption. That I'm going to cleanse you. Similarly, our rabbis have stated repeatedly that the purpose of the Torah mitzvot is the purification of the human being. In other words, catharsis is not a non for me this is in which halakha approves. You have to spiritually cleanse oneself. What halakha understand under catharsis purging? What does that mean? The analysis of a liturgical text helps us understand the question. Among the berachot comprising berachot shachar, say daily. Thank you, Almighty, for restoring actually morning, active life. We recite two berachot, which prima facie, at first glance, at first glance, to be synonymous and therefore redundant. We say one beracha, or they say a big vura, which you all, of course say. <coughs> In standing translation, who girds Israel with might, or they Israel with power with might. And another one, till they have koach, gives strength to the weary. Right? We say that. Correct? Good. Apparently, our liturgists, those who put together to do it, discriminated semantically between koach and gevurah. He's a very good reader of texts. Not every posek is. You cannot compare what he says over here. They don't read text in the same way. He reads his text very carefully, meaning every word is significant. It's the way you study text in graduate school. It's not simply a random word that's used. If you have two words that seem to be the same, they have to be semantically different. Why would the rabbis use two berachot that have to do with koah, which means strength, and gevorah, which means strength? Why the same beracha? So he says, no, they must be different. The people that put together sidur discriminate semantically between koah and gevorah. Had they considered these two terms fully synonymous, they would not have formulated two berachot, one would have sufficed. So we agree with all this, correct? So he begins his analysis of What's catharsis? This goes to the heart of what it means to be Jewish. You have to engage in catharsis, in the cathartic process, to ultimately achieve the appropriate spiritual. So what does koach mean? Koach denotes an aptitude which God has bestowed upon man at birth, a potential. The term koach denotes primarily physical strength, the capability of performing work, which requires an unusual amount of physical vigor. This is the dominant meaning of the word in the Bible itself. Right? Good. So you have this power, this ability to physical, physical engagement. Koch as such is not exclusive human category, since it is related in most of its aspects to man's capabilities as a natural being. So he sees the human being in two different ways. One hand, he's a part of the natural order. He's part of Ma'aseh Bereshit. On the other hand, he was endowed in Bereshit itself with a distinctiveness, which we call Selim Elohim, which means there's something above and beyond the, the animal level. So let's see how that relates. <clears throat> the beast shares with man all his organic aptitudes. Thus, the Koach is equal to man and beast alike. Koach is not a unique gift bestowed by the Creator upon man. Rather, it's an integral part of the unbroken uniform functionality of the natural universe. We'll see what we get. 
You, of course, do not know where he's going with this, but you'll see. What is Gibbura on the other hand? It is a different term. Therefore, must have a different semantic implication. Gibbura, in contradistinction to Koach, is an exclusive grant of God to man, which demonstrates the human being's unique position in creation. Very different in creation. Man's charismatic endowment and his chosenness. So he sees, based on Bereshit Perek Aleph and Bereshit Perek Bet, both men as a natural being, as most people live their natural lives. They simply live on that beast-like level, not fully integrating that second level into their lives itself, which is Bereshit Perek Bet, creating man in his Selim Elohim. So let's try to understand what he means by that. Man has a unique endowment, which we call Tzedem Elohim, charismatic, the ability to influence others in a spiritual fashion, and chosen. Man as a brute, existing in the realm of immediate mechanical, uninterrupted life functions, life functions, was furnished with koach. He's in part of the natural order. He works, he eats, he sleeps, he drinks, he lives, he dies. That's man in Bereshit Perik Alf, so to speak. Man as a personality, distinct and different from the beast and fowl of the field, who confronts nature in a reflective, inquisitive mood, possesses the quality of Givura. And this he shares with no one. So now what does that mean? Givura is a uniquely human character trait, wherein you raise questions. As an individual person, who am I? What's my role? Now, admittedly, most people, let's say, don't really raise that question. Some do, who are academically inclined, spiritually inclined, emotionally, raise the question. They say, here I am, I'm 15 years old, I'm in high school, and I can either be one of the herd, one of the class, and so I do whatever else does. I read, I eat, I sleep, I study, I pass, I go to accept, I keep on following this progression, which is a very normal human progression. There's that one kid that says, I don't really get it. So teaches, what, what don't you get? There's more to life than that what I'm doing right now. There's something else that's distinctively me. How many people in high school see themselves as distinctively separate and different than everybody else? It's that odd kid, the wallflower kid, who walks around trying to figure out, what's my place in this natural order? He sees every other kid going to the dances and going out and doing everything else that kids as part of the herd do. But doesn't feel completely comfortable with that group setting. I am a separate, distinctive person. I am not part of everybody else. I don't like the Beatles. Everybody else likes the Beatles. I am different. I am something that's... Well, and he doesn't really quite get where do I fit. Rare for a high school student. Certainly as you mature, you raise that question. Similar to let's say, in a different way, the businessman who works for 25 years, he's 40 years old by now, and he raised the question, what am I doing this for? Especially after he's made it. He's made his income, he's living at $100,000 a year, everything's in place, it all works out very well, and all of a sudden he gets the question, why am I killing myself, traveling to the Orient, coming back and doing this? I'm fine. It's okay. And you start raising questions reflectively as a 45-year-old person, What's the point of it all? 
my family's taking care of, you might say, we have enough food, we have a two-car garage, we have a house, we have chicken in every pot, everything's fine. So it's time to retire. Let's say you could. What would people say at 45 50 years old if they're going to retire? What would they do? They say, what am I going to do? Right. Time is so precious to us that we always want more and more time to live. We love time. On the other hand, sorry, on the other hand, we try to find ways to fill my time. Now, the reflective person, the introspective person says, there's more to it than simply filling time mindlessly. There's more. What's more? Grandchildren might be more. They fill your life with meaning, significance, with joy, with happiness. You might say, coming to an understanding. Imagine a person who's 50 years old says, I want to understand calculus. Never did. Now, why do you want to do this? It's a a very difficult discipline. Why do you want to study calculus at 50 years old? It's not changing your life at all. Because it's knowledge. (laughs) Sorry? No. You could try any other subject. Maybe a language. Some do. Okay, could be some do. But that's the interesting question. In other words, knowledge as knowledge as per se is a positive. I took 30 years to write a PhD thesis. I gained nothing from it. I don't know why I did it. I could reflectively ask the question. Everything you already know. Sorry? Everything you wrote you already know. Exactly, right. Plus, and you communicate to people who don't understand what you wrote. That's the Plus, it's true. That's for be careful. It's true. And it's I'm a, talking about myself. And it's a thousands of hours you're spending thousands of hours crossing your T's, dotting your I's, and reviewing and changing and getting the bracket formulation. Why am I doing this? You wrote it in calculus and I understand it better. <laughs> right. I can understand calculus better than English. So, so, so that, that's the question. Why do you do this? So you might say, because the essence of man is to, to want to know. You want to know something. You want to master a field. You want to understand something. To whatever degree you can, whatever it may be, you raise those kinds of, not even philosophical questions, but qu- questions of, let me spend the next 10 years of my life, if I could afford it, let's say. That's what we could afford it. Just simply reading, knowing, learning. You might challenge, why do that? What's the point? That's Kohelet's question. Well, would say, so you know more, you read more. Big deal. That's a very cynical, ecclesiastical, Shlomo Melech answer to the question. But... From a reality point of view, it doesn't change anything. It's, that's right. It's a state of mind. Yes, okay. And only change state of mind, and that's inside you. You changed, and nobody around you sees the difference. But so far, it doesn't matter. Difference. But I'm happy with that change. So therefore... But Shlomo says it doesn't make a difference. But I'm saying it does make a difference. doesn't understand and doesn't care. Agreed, agreed. Okay, good. But I'm saying that I spent 30 years of every waking hour that I had 10 or 20 or half an hour trying to write and fill and change, and I, I described... One of the class, I said, when I finished it, it was all done. Defense, everything happened, here it is. I felt myself floating on air. Literally. Literally, I was ragua, and there's no English word to explain that. Just totally relaxed. That literally, wow. I didn't rest, and I didn't realize this, for 30 years I didn't ever have a moment of peace, of tranquility. I was always pursued by this demon of finishing. But why'd I finish? Why'd I have to finish? To the extent where those who, let's say, supported me at the very beginning and gave me all the fellowships and all that stuff, passed away. Yeah. All my three professors. So they, they're not, you know, they're not saying, do it, do it, okay, it's great. They didn't say that. They weren't here. 
So I, when I had to defend, three people never knew me, no people, no clue, no context. So why did I do this? So I didn't do it for them. And so you think about it, reflectively, introspectively, ongoingly, why am I doing this? So it's kind of like those questions that a businessman might ask at a certain point. I've done it. I've gone to the Orient. I bought goods cheap. I came back over here. I sold them. I made money. I'm fine. You've become a multimillionaire. So now some will reflectively say, what's the point at this point? Or you might say, no, I want to make more. Why? You can't spend the money. All those people, Stephen Cohen in Connecticut, or any of these people, Breer at, at Google, they can't spend the money they have. So what's the point? And they might say, the point is the race. It's a rat race. I want to end up on time. So that's a competitive question. I want to make more money than anybody that's ever made in the history of the world. I want to be that person. I'll be known for that. Oh, that might be his goal. Okay, fine. But somebody more reflective might say, so at the end, big deal. So those, those reflective questions is what a man who raises, could be at any point in time, could be a high school senior who says, what's the point of all this? Why do I do this? What am I doing all this for? Especially if you went to a Flappish type of a school. Flappish was unending drudgery. Mm-hmm. You could not escape drudgery. Why? So you, had about, you. you had about <laughs> you had about uh, seven or eight or ten courses. You had a test. Ten. ten. You had a midterm. You midterm, 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 turn. By the time you finish your last midterm, you start the whole system again for the next semester. And next semester. So you never finished. You had Day, let's say it was Monday, you had your whatever test it was, Tuesday test, Wednesday test, because you have, you have the Hebrew, the English, Monday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, 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 ten, two weeks. By those two weeks over, you have another math test, another science test. Another test so it just ends on any drudgery. When do you have a moment to rest? Did you have fun there? I won't use the word fun. Do you remember it fondly? I was, I was, I was, um, I remember it fondly. I think there's people. I remember it fondly, not, not because of fun. Because I was, uh, I was kind of like a, um, a healthy person, as opposed to the neurotic person I became in college. I had to get straight A's. I had to get straight A's. In, in, in college, I had to get straight A's. You get a 90, you're happy, you're fine, didn't make a difference. I wasn't trying to uh, burn the world. In college, I had a crazy roommate that made me get straight A's. So I had to have straight A's in college. So I became neurotic in that context. But in high school, it didn't, at the end, it didn't. Right, so then you. It wasn't, I won't use the word fun. It was, I, I remember fondly, I had good relationships, good, it was good, it was fine. It's fine, but I do remember. But I do remember the drudgery of never-ending testing, from the quizzes to the tests. Et so at a certain point, some kids that were much smarter than me said, "Why are we doing this? There's no point to it. For what?" So you end up going to this unique university, this uh, elite school, and then what? More and more and more and more and more. What's the point of all that? So that philosophical question is what he's asking you to ask at this point. So he says to us over here, man. Well, there's a point for it, by the way. Uh, no, no, you I, could justify it. Yes, no, you make I, I a good, great living. If, if you're studying for the test, then you miss the point. You That's you say for in high begin, school. You have a test you're going to eventually have to take. If from the beginning you learn the material properly that you can pass that test, that's how you're supposed to study. That when the test comes, you shouldn't have to be studying for the test. No, right? we don't want to pass. We want to get hundreds. We don't. We don't get. If no, you didn't get passed, I, I, you got hundreds. If you enjoy the subject and you, you don't enjoy subject, there's no time to enjoy the subject. Right, in high school. You you are burdened. You're in school from. I, I went to Manyans. I didn't see the sun for eight months. 
I went to Minyan at quarter to seven. I didn't see the sun. No, no, no. What are you talking about? When is when you no? You start at seven and you finish at five thirty. I started quarter seven, so therefore I went. I was in school by quarter seven, and I finished at quarter five or whatever it was. It's four months that you don't see the sun. I agree. I agree. Just not eight. Okay. No, he's putting a very negative light on it. I think there's a small percentage that feel that drudgery, but plenty of people have a good time. I, I enjoyed it. It was fine in retrospect, but still. Okay, my point is that someone could raise the question that, and you were pushed to do well and excel and all that stuff. So I was, I was that mechanical person, never asking this question. Because you did well, you was part of the system, and you had to get into, you did all that. So I played by the rules of the game. I wasn't smart enough to challenge the system and say, what's the point really of all this? But at that stage, you need the discipline to be able to go on. That's go on. And then, not, then you're part of the system. Yeah, you are in the beginning. Then you're part of the system. I'm saying, he's saying over here, see yourself as different and distinct, which some kids do. They raise the question, I'm not going to play this game. The really smart kids say, I'm not playing this game. And they'll end up, they'll, they'll end up in the MITs anyway, but they're not going to play the game to get to, have to get to that point. It's, they don't, they're, they're above and beyond the system. So let's see. So he's telling you over here that man can either be viewed as part of the system, as an animal of the field, and just go through his drudgery of life. Never asking that question, what's it really all about the big picture? Man as a personality distinctly different from the beast of the field, who confronts nature in a reflective, inquisitive mood, possesses the quality of Gevura. This is shares with no one. So Koach is not Gevura. Right? Okay, good. Givura, in the context of the biblical narrative and poetically, denotes the capacity of attaining victory. You are gibor. You attain victory of defeating a foe who engages in one in combat. The scripture uses this term exclusively with respect to the points of the warrior, the victor. No, it's the same. Page 40. Same? Same. Well, there's... Some of you have a different one. All of us have the same. Camping. 4041. No, we have 3839. So, 4041. Share. Yeah, because you gave more of the second copy. Okay, you're here at the 4041. I'm just going to listen. 4041. 4041. Read it. I made it. Read it. I don't want to waste it. Rather, Givura refers to the warrior. First, to combat. And signifies successful action taken by one of the combatants. He emerges victoriously. The victory, which Givura is identified is not military victory alone, or indeed any triumph which is merely the result of superior manpower and materials. No, the contrary. At times, the combatant who is defeated on the field of battle is the one who emerges as the Gibor. You are defeated in battle, but you are really the Gibor. Victor in a higher historical sense, not the apparent winner. Victor, to emerge victoriously in a higher historical sense and not to be run. Givurah is sometimes inversely related to Koach. To the degree of might men at his disposal is inverted to Givurah. We'll see exactly what he means. The greater the force one wields, the more power, the less Givurah one needs to display. On the other hand, the weaker one is the tougher the odds. The weaker one is, tougher the odds, the more exalted is the action of the Gibor. The weaker you are, the more gibor you are. What's he talking about? Less is more. Less is more. Which disregards practical reasoning and resorts to the absurd. 
Again, you will not find any 20th century rabbi writing this way. Thus, a new element is introduced in the gesture of Geburah, namely heroism or action undertaken contrary to human logic and human practical judgment. This kind of action quite often leads to ultimate victory, the historical victory. There are situations in life with which clear-cut logical processes and utilitarian approaches fail to cope. While the sudden spontaneous leap into the absurd may save man when he finds himself in utter distress. The non-rational and impractical action is heroic and identical with Gevurah. Not koach with strength, Gevurah, which means in my defeat I find victory. So here's the concrete application. V'yomer, lo Yaakov yamer ochimchakim Yisrael. Your names shall no longer be called Jacob, rather Israel. Why? You've done battle with those who are mighty than you and with people, Batuchal. Right? The names are normally called Jacob. This, of course, is the context of Yaakov battling Sadoshel Isav. That's the context. We all know that, right? Right before his engagement with Isav, he's now about to confront that Yaakov Levador. He's alone. And now he's going to engage with this mysterious nocturnal figure. Who is this man? We're not told. What's this really all about? Interesting over here how the Torah itself is intentionally, emphatically ambiguous as to what this is really all about. What does it really mean? Who is he's alone? Who is this Ish? Who is this Malach? What's it all about? So our research explains. Yaakov had emerged victorious from a most awesome encounter. He had held fast his mysterious foe through a night of sorrow, fear, and loneliness until the new day dawned. Was Jacob's victory something to be expected? Could it have been predicted logically? Was he certain a victory? Of course not. He was alone, weak and unarmed, a novice in the art of warfare. His antagonist was a powerful professional warrior. Why did Jacob not surrender to the foe who attacked him in the dark? Jacob acted absurdly and contrary to all rational practical considerations, give up. You can't win. Why is Jacob engaging in the battle? It's absurd to do, engage in this particular fight. In other words, he acted heroically. To do that when you are guaranteed a failure is to act heroically. He, the lonely and helpless Jacob, dared to engage a mighty adversary in combat. He who had displayed so much business acumen and the keenness of pragmatic mind who was long soldier in Laban's household, suddenly the darkness of his grisly, strange night made the leap into the absurd. Why am I doing this? He refused to yield to a superior force and declared war upon the invincible enemy. What Jacob asked was not koah, strength, but givorah, heroism, which he always employed, which is always employed when reason despairs and logic retreats. With daybreak, the helpless, lonely, non-logical Jacob found himself unexpectedly the victor, the hero. Okay. We finding, following all this? Good, yeah? yeah? But what other choice did he have? Give up. No, he cannot give up. You know, the, the, Why not? Because you have an enemy that is fighting with you. Yeah. you have give up, die. surrender. No, you die. So you die. So Watch, you I'm, die? Fighting, I'm fighting a nuclear war. What am I, what am I doing here? Do I mean, if somebody is attacking you... What did Masada no do? Masada gave you a choice. What's the point of fighting? I can't win this. But even though I cannot win this, 
His point is that, that he cannot win this battle. But I, and it's not logical, it's not pragmatic. I'm fighting against the Sumer, Sumari warrior. What am and I doing he had this for? An option to run, and he didn't run. He's engaged. Right now he's engaged. What do I do now? I'm getting beaten up, I'm getting slaughtered. What should I do? What else can you do? Give up! Surrender! Give up. It's Surrender! There's not always a choice. Here there was a choice. That's his point. It was a choice, but How he... does he see that it was a choice? It doesn't mean... It doesn't seem because to he didn't have to engage. A biblical text that there was a choice. I mean, he didn't have to engage. That's it. He didn't have to engage. He... His point over here is that you have a choice to engage in practical, logical, behavioral norms, which is not to fight when you're sure of defeat. He chooses to fight, and he does that which is absurd. And you, I really want you to see where this is going, because it's not the real point over here. And at the end, you engage in the leap into the absurd, and you engage in, when you don't have the koach, but you have a it's, a, it's a heroic action. I'm going to do this, api givoda, not api koach. And he, where reason departs and logic retreats, then the helpless son of Jacob found himself unexpectedly the victor, the hero. The question is, what does he do next? So hold on. The impossible and absurd had triumphed over the possible and logical. Heroism, not logic, won the day. Is this merely the story of one individual experience? Is it not, in fact, the story of Knesset Israel? Look where he's going with this. Mm. What the Jewish people are all about. An entity which is engaged in an absurd struggle for survival for thousands of years? This is Siman Labanim. So look how he builds upon this beginning. And yet we didn't get to our major point yet. Koach Gevura. You engage in Koach as part of the natural order of things. You're a man of Koach. Gevura is heroic action. When you're logically going to be defeated, you anyway engage heroically. I'm not going to win this battle against history. I'm doing it anyway. Heroically, give it up. As Yaakov engages, and all of a sudden, the impossible, the absurd, triumphs over the possible and logical. Heroism, not logic, wins the day. That is, so let's see now. Next. This point may note, the narrative about Jacob is totally different from the classical epic. So now he's going to compare this to the Greek writings on heroism. Very different. For classical man, meaning the Greek hero, heroism was intrinsically an aesthetic category which fascinated man with its grandeur and glory. Ulysses returns. The classical man of the Greeks was an aesthete. He cared about the beauty of victory. endowed with a demonic quality. He had to win. He longed for vastness. His creative fantasy was boundless and reached for the impossible. He suffered from a sense of frustration and disenchantment. There's no man, not even the most accomplished aesthete, can ever cross the Rubicon, the famous Greek-Roman river, separating finite from infinity. Greek man wanted to conquer everything that was to explore, to absorb, to completely, totally take in everything. That's the ancient pagan. Nothing will stop me. If you think of the famous Greek warriors, or beyond that, the Attila the Huns, Genghis Khan, they conquered, onward, owing, nothing is enough for me. I must have more. 
the victory is found in having more and more and more. Like the man who wants to amass total financial, impossible to spend fortunes. I must have more. But why? I must have more. The pursuit, the competition is what I need to extend myself, expand myself. I need to attack God in the heavens. Ultimately is what he was saying. Like Dora Pilagav yesterday. I need more. I have to be that greater personality. But he's frustrated. <coughs> and disenchanted. There's no man, even the accomplished student, can ever separate factor from infinity. In his agony, the classical aesthete invented the image of the hero who ongoing comes. I don't do this, just one more paragraph. The mere myth of the hero gave the aesthete endless. Thank you. Endless comfort. The myth. At least the classical he said to himself, there was an individual who dared to do the impossible and to achieve the grandiose. In short, the hero of classical man was a grandiose figure with whom to satisfy his endless vanity, classical man, the Greek, identified himself. Hero worship is basically self-worship. I want to be that Greek mythological person who challenges the gods. Prometheus bound. All of your Greek myths that you read, all about becoming greater than the human being can be. The classical idea of heroism, which is aesthetic in its very essence, which means it's, it, it glories in the beauty, lacks the element of absurdity <clears throat> that we have. The hero in Greek plays is an actor who performs in order to impress an appreciative audience. The crowd cheers. The chronicle records. Counter generations afterwards admire. They sing of his heroic pursuits. The classical heroic gesture presents, the classical represents, as I said before, frightened, disenchanted man who tries to achieve immortality and permanence, identify himself with the heroic figure on the stage. So the average Greek personality in the audience sees the hero striving, gaining, and battling the gods, and I could be like him. It's like we watch sports. And we put ourselves that same bottom line inning with the bases loaded and two outs and two strikes on you. And you want to be the one to get that final base hit. And then it happens. You feel aesthetic pleasure, if you're a sports person, that it's done. You've achieved, you have achieved it. We're there. And you really identify so closely with those personalities, and you say, wow. We're there. We won the World Series. We won the World Series. How do sports fans talk? We won the World Series. They feel that way. Yeah. I mean, it's granted that the heroic, heroic, heroic uh, figure... That's the Greek. ...is a person that, uh, that uh, wants to win. Is a More. person that, uh, that we, we admire. Absorb. We admire. Good. He's a winner. But the... the in the, in the case that he brought, the, the, the case of Yaakov, that's, we wants, get to, let's say that he has a choice of, of retrieving and say, okay, I don't, give up, I don't want to, I don't want to fight, okay. So if you go, if you if you if you take that example, a good example, and you you put it in, in any other context, you know, even in the, in the Greek context, so how does it compare, you know, to to to, I'm to, fight, you a second. to a fight where. Okay, we'll get to you it. give up or you fight even if you know that you're going to die. And that's, you know, it's also part of a Greek mentality, you know, Sparta. They, 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 you know, we, die, we die for in, in, in the battle, but we don't give up. Right. So, I mean, it's But not we die to, to gain glory. But it's not different but from... Uh, you'll see. You didn't get to it yet. You didn't see. Hold on. In contrast to the classical aesthetic heroism, biblical... 
Biblical heroism, as portrayed about Yaakov, is not nurtured by ephemeral mood or a passing state of mind, perhaps the central motif of our existential experience. That's his key point. Sorry. What? I thought you don't have problems. Biblical heroism, as portrayed in the narrative of Yaakov, is not nurtured by a central motif, is not nurtured by an ephemeral mood or passing state of mind. Rather, it's perhaps the central motif in our existential experience, meaning it pervades the human mind steadily and imparts to man a strange feeling of tranquility. The heroic personality, Yaakov, according to our view, does not succumb to frenzy and excitement to achieve, to gain. Biblical heroism is not ecstatic or spectacular, but quiet and passive. The individual, instead of undertaking heroic action sporadically, lives constantly as a hero. Jacob did not just act heroically upon the spur of the moment. His action was indicative of a resolute way of life. He was not out to impress anybody. This type of work lasts as long as man is aware of himself as a singular being. Because I'm a person that thinks introspectively, and I see myself in the broader context, then I live life heroically. Jacob was victorious at daybreak when the mist began to lift. His adversary was defeated, and Jacob was ready to consummate his victory. Now comes the moment. The mysterious enemy was at Jacob's mercy. All Jacob had to do in order to bring about the engage, this engagement to a successful conclusion was to destroy his antagonist and eliminate the threat of another attack. Jacob acted differently. And contrary to us may have done, would have done in this place. When the moment in which Jacob could enjoy his victory arrived, he released the attacker, set him free. What motivated such an act? Of course, the antagonist had pleaded with him. He had begged for freedom. Send me away. It's morning ready. The star has risen. But why did Jacob listen to the plea of a man who a short while ago had been termed to annihilate him? The vanquished adversary not even promised Jacob that he would not repeat his attack. To release such a dangerous fiend was unreasonable. This very unreasonableness endowed the act with the quality of heroic and may serve as a pattern for halachic heroism. So now comes the last point. What is heroism in halakha? What does halakha recommend to us that we may attain heroic stature? The answer is one must perform the dialectical movement. What does that mean? I'll tell you. Halakhic catharsis, to cleanse oneself, expresses itself in a paradoxical movement in two opposite directions. In surging forward boldly and retreating humbly. Man's heroic experience is a polar, antithetic one, one against the other. Man drives forward only to... Glory. No. Exactly the opposite, pagan. You're a pagan. What? What? Say that again. Man drives forward only to... Spiritual. Retreat. Only to retreat and reverse the direction of his movement. What's he talking about? Retreat. Hold on. Torah wants man who is bold and adventurous in his quest for opportunities to act heroically. At the final moment, it appears to him that victory is within reach to stop, turn around, and retreat. <clears throat> At the moment 
at the most exalted moment of triumph and fulfillment, man must forego the ecstasy of victory and engage in a self-caused defeat. Jacob acted in this manner. He engaged in a dialectic performance. He tried, he went forward ahead, engaged in battle, but did not consummate the victory. Instead, he set forth the antagonist who had defeated and who could have destroyed. He could have destroyed. By freeing the enemy, Jacob defeated himself. He defeated himself. He withdrew from the position that he had won through courage and fortitude. He engaged in a moment of recoil. Forward and back. Forward and back. Now, how does this translate itself into halakhic categories? On the one hand, halakha tells you, Engage the world. Build the world. Explore the stars. Defeat disease. Man was called upon to defy opposition on the part of nature and march to victory. Biblical man is out to subdue his environment. And yet, when conquest is within man's reach and the road to realization has been clear of all hindrances, man, victor, who, who needs only to reach out and grab everything his heart had desired, must change course, begin to retreat, withdraw. When victory is near, man must invite defeat and surrender the spoils that he had quested for so, so long. The movement is dialectical, back and forth. Forward marching ends in retreat, which in turn leads to what? Humble? No, no. What do you think he's going to say now? I know. What's he going to say? Let's read it again. Hold on. When victory is near, man must invite defeat, as Yaakov did, and surrender the spoils that he had quested for so long. The move that forward marching ends in retreat, which in turn leads to a Gevurah. No, close. Leads to a yes, more so. Leads to a resumption of the forward march. Two steps forward, one step back. Right. Exactly. Avraham is told to engage in self-defeat. You pray for a son. You have your son. You raise your son. God says, I want your son. I need your son. I need your son. I want your son. Avraham says, take my son. He gives up his son. Then what happens? He gets his son back to forwardly march again. Dialectical. What does the retreat do? No, it is not choose. Okay. Don't ask any questions, because right. you won't get it. Give a different example. <laughs> you. This is very Can after, give us a different example? Yes. After man withdraws from the position... But which history he's, works like that, but he's right. After man withdraws from the position, position, which he has acquired through hard labor and sacrifice, he begins once again to swing forward. Sure. Forward, you go back, but again, halakha wants you. Again, halakha encourages man to pursue greatness, vastness, experiment daringly with all liberties to search for dominion. And again, Al-Khan will command man to stop, make an about face, dialectical movement, no matter how incomprehensible to modern man, modern man. What are we as moderns? What are we all about? Forward progress, no defeat whatsoever. He's saying that Halakha tells modern man to stop and contemplate, think, introspect. Good. And again, Al-Khan will command to hold to make it in a word, halakha teaches man how to conquer and to lose. Seize initiative 
and to renounce, succeed, invite defeat, and to res- resume the struggle. Now, the idea of catharsis, how to become a proper spiritual personality, through dialectic movement, manifest itself in all halakhic norms. What are you saying? With regular human life. Nowhere does this doctrine of dialectical catharsis assert itself more frequently does in the aesthetic hedonic. What is, hed- what is hedonism? Pleasure-seeking right, realm. How does man purge himself in this realm? By engaging in dialectical movement, by with surging forward, withdrawing. At the moment when passion reaches its peak, where is he going? The stronger the grip of the physiological drive is felt by man, the more intoxicating and bewildering prospect of hedonic gratification, the more that you want it, the greater the redemptive capacity of the dialectical catharsis of moral quotes. So now he quotes this famous Talmudic statement, which I won't read to you. He says, Bride and bridegroom are young, physically strong, and passionately in love with each other. Both have patiently waited for this rendezvous to take place. One more step, and the love would have been fulfilled, a vision realized. Suddenly the bride and groom make a move of recoil. He gallantly, like a chivalrous knight, exhibits paradoxical heroism. He takes his own defeat. There's no glamour attached to this ritual. The latter is not a spectacular gesture. It's no witnesses to admire and laud him. What does he do? She says, in the part that I did not read, he says to her over here. He wants to associate with her. She says, I've seen a rose red speck. What is she saying? Amnida. He immediately recoils. What made him, the Gemara says, retreat? Keep away from him. Was there an iron fence? Did a serpent bite him? Did a scorpion sting him? A dish of meat is placed before a man. He's told of forbidden is fallen. A, piece, a, piece, a plate of meat is placed before a man. Forbidden the fat is fallen to him. He withdraws from the food. What stopped him from tasting it? He recoils. Did a serpent bite him? No. Only the words of Torah, which are soft as a bed of lilies, based on Shira Shirim. So that's where withdrawal comes in. That's heroic. That the moment when you want to consummate the the eating, the great steak, or the sexual act, you take a step backward. That's catharsis. The heroic act of this bridegroom did not take place in the presence of jubilating crowds. Nobody will sing of these two modest, humble young people. Having the sheltered prophets at their home, still to the night, the young man like Jacob Old makes an about face, retreats. The moment when fulfillment seems assured. This kind of divine dialectical discipline is not limited to man's sexual life, but exists to all areas of natural drive and temptation. The hungry person must forego the pleasure of taking food and madam, household temptation. A man of property must forego the pleasure of acquisition. If the latter is halakhically morally wrong. In a word, halakha requires a man that he possess the ca- capability of self-control. Right. Good. Of course, as we have made evident above, man is called following the movement of withdrawal to once again advance towards full victory. So he says to us, Torah demands this cathartic action, not only in, hedon- in hedon- hedonic, but in emotional world as well. We're an emotional. We understand the bridegroom from that. We're emotionally. In the emotional sphere, the cathartic act consists in retreating or disengaging from one's own inner world. This is really fascinating. In renouncing something that is part of oneself, such as a sentiment, a mood, or a state of mind. Can we indeed withdraw from ourselves, recoil, rejecting the feeling which grips us with enormous force, dismissing an experience which at times is overpowering? Halakha says yes. How so? Torah formulated laws governing these of man. 
not murder, not bear false witness. He has tried to control the inner life of man. Do not be covetous. You should not hate thy brother, etc. In a word, Halakha thinks of man, Halakha thinks there is an ethic, not only of action, we have to withdraw, as in the sexual world, but a feeling as well. Man is a master of his own emotional world, capable of disowning feeling, of, capable of disowning, withdrawing feelings and emotions. However, compulsive or powerful they may be. Conversely, of assimilating redemptive emotion to his personality. Here's the example. The halakha idea of inner withdrawal takes place on the emotional level with Aaron. Aaron the high priest meets with a disaster. On the most joyous day of his life, when the Mishkan was dedicated, he was inaugurated to his office, two of his sons died. Death is always a great evil which man cannot accept. So that's unacceptable to a father who is grief over the loss of his son is limitless. How much more so the unreasonable, I'm finished, unreasonable death of his two sons who had entered the sanctuary to worship and to serve the Lord with devout fire from the Lord. Moses addresses the following words to Aaron and tells him, Let not the hair of your head go loose, neither rend your garments. You can't sit shiver, lest ye die, lest the wrath come upon the people. But let your brethren, the whole of Israel, beware the burning which the Lord has kindled. You shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle, lest ye die, because you are coherent. Moses commands Aaron and his children from mourning for Nadav and Ehu. Aaron and his two survivors were enjoined from shedding a tear. They couldn't cry. Emotional retreat. Why? Because the Kwanim comes to a community of the anointed who were consecrated exclusively to the service of God. The inalienable right to which every parent is entitled of mourning the death of a child was denied to son. The commitment or consecration of priest to God is ultimate, all demanding, and all inclusive. God lays unrestricted claim not to a part, but to the whole of the human personality. Existence in total, in its external and inward manifestations, is consecrated to God. Iron belonged to no one, not even to himself, but to God. Therefore, he was not free, not even free to give himself to the grief precipitated by the lost two sons. He had no private world of his own. The heart of Aaron was divine property. What does it mean in psychological terms? God wanted Aaron to disown the strongest emotion in man, the love of, of a child. Is it possible? As far as modern man is concerned, I wouldn't dare answer. With respect to biblical man, we read that Aaron acted in a court of divine justice. Aaron withdrew from himself, withdraw, backwards. He withdrew from being a father. This kind of movement of recoil is tantamount to self-denial. So its action is certainly cathartic. It's pure. It's spiritually purifying. It's certainly heroic. As such, it's far more exalted than the Aristotelian Aristotle's catharsis, which Jews does not accept. Not only Aaron, but the entire covenantal community, all of us, was summoned by God to a service. Once a man enters the service of God as a high priest, be an ordinary be it as an ordinary humble person, his commitment is not partial, it's total. Subject to the divine call for total inner withdrawal. Hence, Yalacha intervenes frequently in the most intimate and personal play phases of our lives and demands upon us. What's the exact example he gives us over here? Avelut. In Avelut. We know the festival suspends the morning. A person dies in the middle of the, of the holiday. For one of the seven intimate relatives. If one begins to observe Shiva before the holiday, the latter can, the holiday cancels Shiva. Let's not forget that Avelut in Halachak is of more than the performance of external ritual. It's more than it is an inner experience of black despair, of complete human failure, of the absurdity of being. 
It is a grisly experience which overwhelms man, which shatters his faith and ex- exposes his eye awareness as a delusion. Similarly, the, the precept, Simhat Yom Tov, I now have to be happy on the Yom Tov, impossible, includes not all ceremonial actions, but a genuine experience of joy as well. When Torah says, Simhat Behagecha, it referred not to a merrymaking with but, but rather to an all penetrating death experience, depth experience of spiritual joy, serenity, peace of mind, derived from faith and the awareness of God's presence. It says, concrete situation. The mourner who has buried a beloved wife or mother returns home from the graveyard where he has left part of himself to witness the mockery of human existence. We understand why death is the mockery of human existence. We understand that. He has a mood to question the validity of our entire universe. The house is empty, dreary. Every piece of furniture reminds the mourner of his beloved person he is buried. Every corner is full of memories. Yet halachad herself to the lonely mourner and whispering to him. And he quotes, Rise from your mourning. Cast the ash from your head. Change your clothes. Light the, sh- the festive candles. Recite over a cup of wine, Kiddush, extolling God for giving us festivals of gladness and sacredness of joy. Pronounce your Hayyan. Join the jubilating community and celebrate the holidays if nothing had transpired. As if the beloved person over whose death you grieve were with you. Halakha, which at times can be very tender, understanding, accommodating, may on other occasions act like a disciplinarian demanding obedience. Halakha, such a demand, broken in body and spirit, carrying the burden of absurd existence, that he changes the mood, that he casts off his grief and chooses joy. Let's repeat the question. Is such a metamorphosis of the state of mind of an individual possible? Can one make the leap from utter bleak desolation and hopelessness to joyous trust? Can one replace the experience of monstrosity, the feeling of highest meaningfulness? I have no right to judge. However, I know of people who attempted to perform this, the greatest of all miracles. He then concludes that it's not only true in the physical sense of action and in the emotional sense, but also intellectually, in science as well, where you know everything that has to be known, think, understand. On the other hand, at a certain point, you have to withdraw intellectually and say, maybe something escapes my mind. Not to absolutize the thought that you have, that it must be what I think it is. Withdraw from that as well. So he says, concluding, if the scholar simultaneously with the ecstasy of knowing experiences the agony of confusion together with the suicide of the feels the pain spirit of defeat by being because he doesn't know everything his cognitive gesture is purged and redeemed you know you think you get it you withdraw maybe I'm wrong and then he is cathartically involved he's redeemed then and only then does the gesture become heroic that's this now to summarize what the purpose of this was to show you how he operates with biblical concepts. Koach, Givurah. Koach, physical. Givurah is a kind of inner strength wherein you withdraw. Look how complex his philosophy of Judaism actually is. To conquer. Actionally. Kivshuha, withdraw. Emotionally. You're defeated. You have to experience self-defeat. I re- refuse to be mournful that situation though you just buried that person and intellectually as well so you go from marching forward to withdraw that's catharsis that's what God demands of us that's what Hashem wants you have seen over here a completely different philosophy as to what Judaism is all about that's creative 
Nobody else ever said so. Nobody else ever thought so. It's a completely unique contribution to what Torah is building from halachic concepts and these philosophical ideas. Yes? Is there any kernel of this in any sources of this idea? Of, Read it. Uh, no. Besides him. No, I would say no. But he builds. I'm, so, I'm sure he's standing on the shoulders of other people. Right. I'm fine with that. But, but he doesn't quote... There's a kernel somewhere of this idea of I think you're fine two steps that. back, two steps forward, one step back. Anywhere, it's anywhere? It's slower, not so much cathartic. It's, yeah, he puts it in a cathartic context. <laughs> right. I don't know, I think of it as history also. Like, if World War II... Correct. It didn't happen. I agree. And there wasn't the slaughter of World War II. Taking rates off to school. You wouldn't have this Thank idea you. that all of Thank Europe you. was demilitarized and you're all of Asia more. was demilitarized yeah. and that America will put militaries all over the world to keep peace. And America would never do that if there wasn't humongous slaughter. So Agreed. you have to go back and then you go forward. Agreed. Agreed. It works that's historically. historical. He's saying in all yeah, lives. Yeah, he's saying Jewishly. Emotional, intellectual, and I'm adding historical. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. In, in, in the concept. But at the same time, I'm, it's I'm struggling to believe in it. <laughs> yes. We did I, it on one leg, so I don't. Know. I Take it. Sorry to keep you late. The, Sorry the to keep you. The way he extends it, maybe I didn't hear it before. But the concept of Gibor, you do find in Talmud. Well, yeah. well, he wants to say, I can't say, correct. So that's is the concept of withdrawing. Back, Gibraltar, I mean, it's to hold back. No, they don't say it. They don't withdraw. They don't say it. No, no they say it. The Gibraltar of Hashem is that he, held, he holds Not back. Not the Neon That's the Shekhar Zagirullah. The Neon Yemiyah don't say it. The Neon Yemiyah don't say it. They don't say it. We can't say it. Right, we can't say it until somebody has to do it to say it. Yeah, that's why right. they're, they're a great assembling. Right, they say it. So, so, they have this so, new so interpretation of it. That's the conclusion. The bottom right. line that we want to stay with, I would say, oh, well, we found a good explanation for it. So that's the explanation he wants to stay with. And he's explaining it as withdrawing. Right. Rather than uh, so applying the, your stance. Right, so, they, so they, yeah, so that's a different, he quotes that as a footnote, correct. Right. So again, this idea is just to see how creative he is with these concepts, these ideas, which again... There's some footnote on the bottom you didn't cover, and I wanted to know what, you, what it meant. Well, I didn't cover it, yes. Yeah. Uh, page 40, did you record? the bottom. Moses, yeah, the great god, the Gibor, and then the last sentence. Yeah, this is, what this is what I was just talking about. These great men identified Gevura with withdrawal and defeat. Right, that's what you said. Yeah? Yeah, yeah same thing, yeah. For the future? It's a great Gemara. It's a great Gemara. Give me like a two-sentence summary of what that means. Yeah, you have Moshe Rabbeinu in Devarim says, God is great. We quote that in, in the Siddur itself, right? And we find in Tupisukim, it's a brilliant statement, whereas Daniel does not say, it says, Ael Hagadol, doesn't say Gibor, and Yemiyahu does not say Nora, right? They each one misses one of those four words of adjectives. So why don't they say it? So Daniel says, I see the pagan nations conquering the Israelites. Where's God's awesomeness? Miao says, he sees the um, pagan nations dancing better Mekdash. Where's his power? So they don't say it. They were true to their spiritual inclinations. They couldn't say it because they didn't experience it. So now the men of the great assembly, because the Gemara was questioned, why are they called men of the great assembly? Because they were able to interpret that you can still say those four words, that is strength and that the Jewish people have survived and they have not been overrun by the pagans. So there is strength in God's restraint. There's strength in his withdrawal. In his, in Hashem's restraint from punishing the pagans and from allowing us to survive. So therefore, you can still say these four words. So and it's sort of a kernel. 
Yeah, in a certain sense. Yeah, that's why it goes into the footnote. Thank you. So that's the kernel I was asking. Yeah, yeah, more or less in but a certain sense. Much bigger. Much more. Yes, correct. Okay, so we're gonna go with him, but if.